The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Other things, but in this letter, the apostle, the pastor, the teacher, Paul, he is writing to the church there in Rome, a church that was beginning and in the midst of the throes of persecution that the Jewish believers within the church had been cast out of Rome for a time by the, by the government. They were coming back in, and in their absence, the gospel had borne fruit within the Gentile and uh, the pagan uh, nation there, and many uh, who were not from Jewish descent had come to faith, and so now you had this church coming back together of great racial and ethnic diversity, of social diversity, uh, of wealth, and of poverty, but all had in common the reality that Christ was their only hope in the midst of this world. And Paul was writing to them, and he was saying to them, I hope to come to you. I hope to come and preach to you. I, I want to talk to you about these things of the gospel, that they would bear fruit in your life Uh, that you would see these things prosper within your life to such a way that they would bear fruit uh, in your life. Paul probably didn't think when he wrote uh, this letter that he would get there, but he wouldn't be coming as an invited guest speaker, one who would receive a grand honorarium uh, to step into the pulpit of the day as the leaders in our church in America and Uh, The superstars, when they get invited, come and everyone's thrilled that they come and they're great men. Paul came in chains. Paul came and was imprisoned. Paul came and he said, this gospel that I've written you about, this gospel that I believe in so fully, it is worth even my very life. And I believe that it is going to bear fruit in my life, even in the midst of my dying, that as I'm crucified... As I am killed for this Christ, I still am not ashamed of him. I'm still not ashamed. For I believe that Christ and the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all of those who would believe unto the Jew first and then to the Greek. And Paul took his dying breath believing that and never being ashamed. You want to talk about a lesson driven home by example of the shepherd, of the pastor, Paul was able to say, I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am not willing to do. I'm not asking you to sacrifice anything that I am not ultimately willing to sacrifice myself. And he was saying to them, you have to believe in this hope of Christ himself because this world, this is not your home. This world and this civilization and this culture, as grand and grandiose as it may be, as wonderful and beautiful as it is, as advanced as it may be, as modern as it may be now, it's not your home. You're sojourners and foreigners in the midst of an an alien land. And your home is established somewhere else through the kingship of Jesus Christ who came and through his work on the cross and through the grave and now seated in heaven has made you citizens of someplace else. And it's that citizenship that matters most. You have another king and not Caesar. Render under Caesar what's Caesar's, but render under God what is God's. 
and render your life to him in that way, and you'll never be put to shame. And he wrote this letter. That's a pretty good letter, huh? In that way. And the first 11 chapters, as we've turned them into chapters, are saying this is the foundation, this is the theology, uh, this is all that you have there, this, this is beautiful meat uh, of the gospel and of deep and profound truths of God and his people. And then he says, now therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Because of all of this stuff I've just written, now I'm asking you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. I'm not asking you to do that beforehand. I want you to understand the basis. I want you to get it right first. I want you to understand that your justification, your standing before God, is what leads and motivates your life. We were talking in our inquirers class this weekend and the excitement of having new families come and join with us in our church. We were talking about how Paul hammers and hammers and hammers justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. That it's a one-time act of God's free grace by which you are declared righteous before him. Uh, that your account has been fully paid, and, but that account now is not empty. That account is full of Christ's righteousness that has been credited to you. You don't have an empty bank account, by the way. You're not starting back at ground zero. You're not just barely uh, treading water. It says that your account of all that you owed the Lord has been paid by Christ fully, and Christ has now given you all that he has. Your account is full in him. He says we need, and we were talking, we need to understand that first, our justification, or else we're going to think that somehow we have to save ourselves. And we understand that being changed and be more like Christ, the sanctification part, that it's next, that it's driven from who we are in Christ. It it is an outworking of that reality of the change that's happened in our lives. And sometimes we we believe we mix up justification. Sometimes we mix up sanctification. And sometimes we mix up the order of them. Sometimes, and some of you today may think this way, I've got to get myself cleaned up a little bit before Jesus will accept me. I've got to get a little bit better. I've got to get a little bit moral, a more moral in my life. I've got to do this and do that, and then Jesus will do this and do that for me. You've gotten the sanctification before, the justification. What Christ is saying, what Paul is hammering home today, is this reality. Because of Christ's work on your behalf, freely given to you and freely accepted by you, because of that, now all these other things happen. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be spending just a few minutes today in chapter 5, looking at verse 12 and going down to the end of the chapter. And this is one of the most studied sections uh, of all of the book of Romans because it's one that has been widely misunderstood and one that has been used for years to misrepresent the truth or to spawn off what we would say are heresies in the church, heresies of the nature of sin, the nature of man, uh, how salvation may be understood And so we need to spend a few moments in it and consider it fully together. So as we come with humility to God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come now and ask that you would bless your word, that by your spirit you would minister to us through it, that we would sit under its authority, that we would be transformed by it. You would captivate our minds and our hearts and our thoughts, that we would doubt our intellect and our wisdom and we would trust yours more. Father, we praise you, we give you glory. To Christ we pray, amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. He had to bless his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. A couple of things to note in just setting some vocabulary for us, setting some terminology that we're going to need as we understand the rest of this passage. First, Adam is referred within this passage as an historic figure. That it is the belief of the Orthodox Church, it's the belief of the church historic and of our church current, Uh, that Adam was a historic figure, that he's not myth, that he's not produced, he doesn't simply represent something, but he was created, that it was a beginning and that there was an end, that he had flesh and that he lived. And so Adam and Eve are historic figures. You may think that's an odd place to begin, but it is something that is under attack today uh, within the church. And if Adam was not real, was Adam was not truly human, then there is great damage done uh, to the work of Christ. For you see, Adam was called there in verse 14 that he was a type of the one who was to come. He was a type of Christ. That, that word type uh, is a word that means a foreshadowing. That Adam was an historic figure, but he foreshadowed the coming of Christ to come. That he represented Christ in some way, uh, and we were looking forward to Christ's coming. And that he was pointing to something beyond himself. It's similar to Jerusalem and the temple uh, are said to be types of heaven. They're foreshadowings of something that is to come. Uh, It's not that the new heaven and the new earth, when they descend, uh, will take on the characteristics of uh, Jerusalem and the temple of the Old Testament, but that the temple uh, and the Jerusalem of the Old Testament take on the characteristics of the true Jerusalem and the true temple that is to come. They foreshadow it and they point to it. So Adam pointed to something that was coming later, looking at Christ. And in this, uh, there is an idea and there is a concept that's important for us to get, and it is that of headship. It says that as Adam represented all of humanity, all of humanity is represented by him and therefore are in him, and that we face the consequence of his disobedience. 
And when we present this idea of headship, that all of us are in Adam, uh, the response that comes so often from folks is something like this. That's not fair. I didn't eat the fruit. If I had been there, and you know how you're going to finish that statement, right? If I had been there, I promise things would not have been this way. Jesus could have stayed home. We wouldn't have had to go through all of this. Everyone would have been fine because Adam messed up and Eve messed up. That's not fair to me that I have to bear the consequence of their disobedience. If you hold that position, it has implications for your understanding of the work of Christ. For Christ is also spoken of in terms of headship. That the work of Christ, that He is the head then of all believers, and that because of His work, we benefit from His work. And so if you don't want to benefit from Adam's failed work, you do not get the privilege of benefiting from Christ's successful work. But the Bible over and over and over again speaks of headship. It speaks of the fact that we are in Adam and then as Christians that we are in Christ and the implications of those things and we're going to talk about them. And the final thing that I need to speak of here uh, is this idea that this passage has been used by many currently and in history uh, to say that Paul teaches universal salvation for all people. Uh, That the language in here, and I would admit that the language in here comes incredibly close to saying that. That for all who were in Adam fell, just so all who are in Christ are saved. And that he speaks in these broad terms. And we're not going to have time, and quite honestly, uh, I am not of the caliber to fully explain all the nuances that are in here. Uh, But simply to say this, there is uh, a rule and a principle within biblical uh, understanding and biblical study that you allow the very clear parts of Scripture to illuminate the parts that are unclear. And we know very clearly, even on the four and a half chapters leading up to where we are, that Paul was saying not everyone is saved. That those who are saved will gain eternal life, but those who will not will stand under the wrath of God. So we know what he's not saying in this part of chapter 5. What we've got to figure out is exactly what he is saying. So that's an incredibly important biblical understanding for you to have just to tuck away as you study scripture allow the clear parts of scripture to illuminate for you the parts that are unclear uh, in those things so a couple of terms and a couple of things there now we're going to look very briefly this morning at four areas that we're going to look in this passage and we're going to see uh, two things two things in four areas but they're coming under two um, if you would titles The first title is this, and I didn't make these up. These are from a ministry of Jack Miller and a wonderful pastor and professor from Philadelphia who's now with the Lord, and he said this, cheer up, you're worse than you want to think that you are. So that's the first heading. So if you're taking notes on the little handout that, by the way, is in the seat in front of you, uh, the sermon notes uh, are there for you to write down, cheer up, you're worse than you want to think that you are. And under that, there's going to be one major point. And that one major point is this. There's a universal nature of sin. That sin is universal and its effects are universal. The second large heading is this. Cheer up. You're more loved in Christ than you ever dared dream or imagine. Cheer up. You're more loved in Christ than you ever dared dream or imagine. And under that major heading will be three things. We'll see the abundance of God's grace, the abundance of God's grace, 
the perfection of Christ's obedience, the perfection of Christ's obedience, and the beautiful reign of grace in life. So we'll see under that the abundance of God's grace, the perfection of Christ's obedience, and the beautiful reign of grace in life. And then we'll come to this conclusion and ask this very simple question at the end. Where do you stand in all of this? Where are you going to throw your hat? And to which ring are you going to throw your hat? Where do you stand? You have to make that decision. You have to know. You can't give and utter the teenage answer to every question that every parent ever asks. So, how's your day? Uh-huh. How's school today? Uh-huh. How'd you do on your test? Uh-huh. Are you dying? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You can't do that in life. It may work in adolescence, but it does not work spiritually before the king who will one day say to you, where do you stand? Do you stand against me? Or do you stand with me and my son? You have to be able to articulate clearly, beginning today, beginning right now, where do you stand in all of this? It's the most important question that you will be asked today, and you'll be asked a lot of questions. You've already been asked questions, but this is the most important one, and I invite you to wrestle today with profound and weighty things. John Piper said one time, a wimpy theology leads to a wimpy life. This is not wimpy theology. This is profound, and it's heavy, and it's deep, and it has implications and ramifications into eternity itself. And it has implications and ramifications, by the way, when we speak of headship, even down to the generations who are to follow you if the Lord stays his course. So first, cheer up. You're worse than you thought you were. The universal nature of sin. He says there in the beginning, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he pauses. There's a hyphen there. It's as if Paul is going, oh, wait a second. I can't just say that and not caveat it. I can't just say that and not explain it. There are too many questions that are coming on that. So he begins to speak now. He writes almost in a parentheses form all the way down through verse 17 is in parentheses. He's saying a death came and sin came into the world through one man that is through Adam and all the world in Adam sinned. Therefore, all the world is held guilty. All the world, even before the Mosaic law uh, was was brought into effect, even before that, even to people who'd never heard the law, they stand still condemned and guilty of the sin of Adam. What he was doing was he was listening uh, as any good communicator would. And he would say, I'm going to present something, but I'm going to already see that there's going to be pushback. So I'm going to try to answer the questions before they're even asked. And so that's what Paul is doing. Paul is explaining the universal nature of sin in the world, that it's not just something that was through uh, Hebrew mythology. It wasn't just something of the ancient Near East, but he ties it back. He trumps it. He goes, no, 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 this goes all the way back. This is a creation issue. This goes back and it begins with the original Adam and Eve with the original man and woman. It's tied all the way back there. Therefore, everyone who comes out of their genealogical tree, which, by the way, is everyone, they are affected by the failure of the original parents. And he places it, interestingly enough, not on Eve, men. It's nice to say 
And men sometimes feel better about themselves by going, well, as Eve, she was the weaker vessel. Christ wasn't the second Eve. Christ was the second Adam. Because he said, Adam, you didn't lead your family well. Adam, you stood right there. You know in the scripture in the Hebrew, uh, when Eve was being tempted by the evil one, and she was there, and she was lied to, and the scripture and the word of God was manipulated that had been given to Adam. You remember where Adam was? It says he was right there next to her, and he said, absolutely nothing. And God said, Adam, this is on you. You fell. And because you fell and that you were the head of all of humanity, now all of humanity falls in you. Because he said in Genesis 3, he said this, if you eat of that tree, if you eat of that fruit of that particular tree, now you can have all the rest of all of creation. It's all yours. I'm not a God who doesn't want you to have fun and want you to enjoy. And all. I'm just telling you, you can't have that one tree. And Adam and Eve, in their determination to self-rule and their determination to be their own God, They said, we're going to eat of it. And he said, in the day that you eat of it, surely you will die. Death will enter. Spiritual death and physical death will enter. And you see, what he's saying now is that this sin has entered the world and death through sin has entered the world. And that we all are going to have to wrestle with it. You understand why funerals and death is so difficult for humanity. We weren't designed to die. You know that about yourself. You weren't designed to die. Death was an uninvited entrance into the human story. And that's why Christ, when he comes and he says that when I bring redemption, when I bring salvation, I'm going to destroy death because it was never supposed to be here anyway. Death will disappear. Oh, death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is the sting. The sting of sin is death. And he says, I've I've destroyed death. You cannot have any power over me. Or all of those who come with me and are mine. So you see, he says there's a universal nature to sin. And that's not popular in today's day and age. It's not popular to say to people, uh, you know, at the very heart of who you are, you're broken and busted and sinful. And you stand in opposition to God and underneath his wrath. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not a religious person. You can't force on me your religion. I'm not a religious person. It doesn't matter. Earlier, Paul said it doesn't matter that all of humanity... And now here, all of humanity. He says it predates the Mosaic law. He comes up with this great articulate argument. And he says it even is applied to those uh, whose sinning, verse 14, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What in the world does that mean? It means that there are those who don't, don't sin just by breaking moral codes. Adam and Eve broke, consciously broke a rule. They determined to break a, a rule. What he's saying here, everyone is accountable, even those who don't know the rules. Even those who don't and can't objectively break a rule. Infants, children, those who've never heard the law, those things, all of them stand condemned under sin and evil, born into this frailty. And you may go, whoa, 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 now, now preacher, you've gotten from preaching into meddling. Because you're talking about Babies. You're talking about this, all of humanity. There's a totality to it that is overwhelming and sobering in the world. And it's one that we have to wrestle with. It's one that pushes us and forces us back against the very nature and character of who God is. And so Paul's saying sin is universal. 
that sin is more than just a bent towards doing something wrong, which is the Roman Catholic view of sin. That sin is more than just breaking the rules, but that sin is our nature. It is that we are guilty not simply because we break the law, but because we are in Adam, that we are actually guilty of Adam's sin. Back to that headship. So there you go. Some would call that total depravity. Some would call that um, other things. But the reality is this, all of nature is under the power of sin. Y'all have a good week. Right? Wouldn't that be horrible if you're like looking at the letter? Okay, really? There's got to be another page to this. Paul's great in the page. He loves to start here with these things, and the Scripture constantly does it because they want you to start this way. Cheer up. You're worse than you think that you are. If you don't start there, the gospel has no meaning and significance for you at all. If you don't know that you're totally lost because of Adam, if you don't realize that it's not just because of your breaking rules, if it just was because of your breaking rules, then guess what could happen? You could not break rules, and you wouldn't need Jesus. But what Paul is saying is this, you are by nature children of wrath, and you are under the condemnation of God. And we would have to sit in sobering moments and go, oh no, what do I do then? Cheer up. The gospel is greater than you ever dare dream or imagine in Christ Jesus. All of a sudden, that becomes good news uh, when you realize, okay, uh, so I'll give you the whole, all right, all humanity's bad and we're in trouble and we're going to stand before God. So what happens? Well, now we see this. There is an abundance, a super abundance of God's grace, verses 15 to 70. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift of grace uh, of that man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of sin uh, of the one man. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following the many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ Paul is trying with every bit of his poetic power, every bit of the pen that he could use to let you see this. He is using superfluous language. He is using language that is massive. He is saying it is so much better. The grace that is given to you in Christ is an abundance of grace. It is more powerful than Adam's trespass. It trumps your heart. It is more powerful than your heart. It is more powerful than your failings. It will win out in the end. He's using kingly and kingdom language. He's saying this, this grace is a sovereign grace. And it will win over your heart. That your heart can't stand up against the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus in the gospel. That it rules in the lives of believers. That it is given to you in that way. Folks, that should be the best news that you've heard. Because I know this about my story. I wasn't looking for Jesus. I was just looking to get home. I was just looking to get back to my apartment in Columbia and get back to my life and doing all the things that I was doing. I didn't want, need, or have any inclination that I needed Jesus at that time. 
actually resented the fact I wanted enough religion in my life to let people think that I was a good person, but I surely didn't want him in my life meddling around and causing me to have to stop doing the things that I thought were bringing me life. But praise God that his sovereign grace was greater than my stubborn heart or I never would have chosen him. I never would have moved towards him. I never would have come to salvation. But folks, the beauty of the gospel is this. His grace is stronger than your lostness. His grace is stronger than the sin in your heart. And he says it is a super abundance of grace. More than you ever could have asked or imagined. And it rules in the lives of believers. It has you. It has you. And that's such good news. And so we see this abundance of God's grace. And we see through that a perfection of Christ's obedience. We see not only is this grace a superabundance of grace that's given to us and it overwhelms and takes over the human heart, that it conquers sin and death within the heart of the believer, turns it into from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh that will choose him, that will pursue him, that will by its volition follow and take him. We were talking in the inquirer's class Do you have to choose God in order to be a believer? And a good Presbyterian Reformed person gets really uncomfortable with that language. And the answer is absolutely you do. As for me and my house this day, I choose to follow him. But the only way I would ever do that is if this heart of stone, conquered by sin, would be turned into a heart of flesh conquered by God's grace. That he initiated that work, that he changed my heart in such a way that it would choose him. R.C. Sproul says, you still choose God. God just changed the chooser so that you would. He changed your heart so that you would choose him. And then we come and we rest not on the, the strength of our choice, but we come and we rest on the perfection of Christ's obedience on our behalf. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made sinners righteous. Are you saved by works or by grace? Hmm. It's actually both. Somebody had to do the work. Somebody had to undo what Adam didn't do. Somebody had to stand and say, I won't eat from that tree. I will perfectly obey the moral law. I will perfectly obey the civil law. I will perfectly obey the ceremonial law. I will perfectly do it and I will give my grade to the judge on behalf of all of those who would have faith in me. Somebody had to believe, had to work it out perfectly and Christ says, I did it. It's based on the obedience of one man. Oh, that sounds so good to a guy who in his first semester of college math walked into the final with a 33 average. I so desperately wanted someone to take the test for me. And the professor says, just show me some improvement and I'll give you a D as long as you take the class again in January. I made a 36 on the final. Improvement, he was a man of his word, I got a D and I moved on. That's not how it works in heaven. God doesn't look for a curve and he surely doesn't say just a little improvement, folks. He says, I need perfection. I need a life perfectly lived. I need 100% on that grade sheet. And it's got to be there for you or you fail. And when you fail, you don't just get kicked out of school. Uh, You don't just lose your scholarship. You lose. Period. And so we stand upon the perfection of Christ's obedience on our behalf. 
And he says, I'll come willingly and I'll live on your behalf perfectly. And then I'm going to give you my righteousness and I'm going to impute it into your life. It is now your record. Do you see the headship? He says, I'm displacing Adam. He's no longer your head. I'm your head. You are no longer a son of Adam. You are a son of the king, a daughter of the king. Your lineage now has been shaped and forked down. And it now says that I am in Christ. And Christ is in me the hope of glory because of his perfect work on your behalf. I was talking to somebody the other day and she was rattled because she made a B one time. Folks, when you stand before the perfect and righteous judge, you better hope that you have perfect marks. One B doesn't count it. One B doesn't make it. And so we run to the perfection of Christ's obedience on our behalf. And what comes out of that, and we'll end quickly with this, is the beautiful reign of the grace of life in us. Verse 21 and 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have been given this life, and it is a beautiful life. It is one of superabundance of grace in your life, and you are invited to live it. You're invited to enjoy it, that it reigns and it rules in your life. And here's a little kicker at the end. If it was never based on your perfection, if it was never based on you doing the work, it was always based on God, then there's nothing you can do to ever lose it. Ever. Sometimes that gets an amen. Because if it's based on me, I'm going to mess it up. And there are days that I have the thought. There are days that I have the thought and I have the emotions and the feelings of, I don't know that I want this anymore. God, I don't know that if this is where you're leading me and this is where you're taking my family, I'm not sure I want you anymore in the midst of that. And I'm so thankful that God says, Bill, I don't really care what you think. I'm still holding on to you. You may say you don't want me, but I sure want you at such an expense of the blood of my son that I'm holding on to you and you will never, ever, ever be lost. Go live in the abundance of the life that I've given you instead of the fear of losing it. We need to learn that. You need to learn that. Oh, how wondrous the mystery of Christ's love for me on the cross. And to go out into this world and say, I don't understand everything. But I know this much. Because of the work of my true head, Christ, I get all of his benefits. And I know something about my heart. I don't deserve it. But I surely will receive it. And I will hold on to it for dear life. And I will live in light of that reality. So as the worship team comes up to lead us in our hymn, I want to ask you again this question. Where do you stand? Where do you stand today? Do you think that you're going to make it on your own? And can stand on your own? 
or are you willing to set aside, as the hymn that we sang earlier says, my arrogant pride, Jesus, I come to thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you that it comes and it confronts and it wrecks our ego and our pride. Thank you that you didn't leave us lost, but that you bring us into your glorious light. And that it is truly a mystery that slain by death the God of life, but no grave could restrain him, that he is alive. And that in Christ in power, resurrected, that we will be with him when he comes. To Christ be the glory. Amen. I invite you now to sing, to sing this hymn. So let's stand and sing together.